in 17 days, we, we Americans, and maybe some others as well, will be marking the 10th anniversary of 9-11. The very fact that we can say the term 9-11 and know that almost everybody knows what we're talking about is, is remarkable. The first plane that hit the first tower had 92 people on it, and they all died in a fireball instantly. The second plane had 65 people in it, and when it hit the second tower, they all died instantly. Some minutes later, those two towers collapsed in an unforgettable moment for us, and 2,595 people perished in that moment. The third plane had 64 people on it and smashed into the Pentagon, and they all died that moment, and the 125 people in the Pentagon died that moment. And the fourth plane, most remarkably, perhaps, had 45 people on it, and they gave themselves to die in a field in Pennsylvania. And where that plane was heading for, nobody knows. The total was 2,986 people dead in a matter of hours. And two years later, there was an earthquake in Bam, Iraq, and 10 times that number died in one night. And two years after that, there was a tsunami in the Indian Ocean, and 10 times that 10 times number died in one night. And closer to home in America, two weeks ago, one helicopter. I talked to one chaplain, he said, lucky shot. It was just a lucky shot by a ground rocket and 31 of our young boys are dead at one moment in Afghanistan. And of course, for you, yesterday, 11 people burned to death in a house and the circumstances surrounding it are so painfully tragic as I read them. And we would all be stunned, wouldn't we? At least in America, we would be stunned speechless if we were made to watch the car accidents that kill 50,000 people every year in America. I don't know how many it is here. And lest we think these are unusual statistics, 50 million people die every year in the world. 6,000 every hour. 100 every minute. And my question is, what does Jesus want us to learn about our lives from that? Particularly from yesterday's fire. Let's just bring it home. What is Brisbane supposed to hear from that? Jesus' answer to that question is found in Luke 13, and I'll read it to you. If, if, if a 
news reporter, which they've done after certain calamities, like a, the bridge of the interstate, a quarter of a mile from our house, collapsed a few years ago. And where was God? And what would Jesus say? And what would Jesus do? And they want you to say something. And, and here's what he would say. So I'm going to read you the voice of Jesus to Brisbane. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? The situation is that Pilate had taken some pilgrims who had come to worship in Jerusalem and slaughtered them in the temple and mingled their blood with the sacrifices that they were going to give. And they came to Jesus with this news. What do you make of this? No, I tell you, I don't think they were worth sinners. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, what we know about Jesus is that he could weep over his city, right? We know that from Luke 19. Jesus wept when he looked at Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks and you would not. So he could weep over a, a perishing people. And we know that we're told in Romans 12, 12, weep with those who weep. The, the first response of a, of a soul to suffering is shared pain. Something wrong with your heart if your first thought is analytical. But after a few days, maybe too early in Brisbane, months go by, families need answers. And, and sympathetic, soft, gentle hugs just won't cut it anymore. I want to know something about this. I appreciate your sympathy, but I need something under my feet. I need, some, I need this to fit in somewhere, somehow. And Jesus gives us that. He, he talks about ultimate reality. He deals with God and sin and judgment and salvation. Those are the big issues in life. And we need to know how things relate. So he says... Are you astonished that these Galileans were slaughtered in the temple? Are you astonished that they were walking by the tower in Siloam and it just fell on them? They were just doing nothing. It killed 18 of them. Are, are you astonished at that, he says. And they say, yes, we're astonished. What do you make of it? And his answer is, you're astonished at the wrong thing. What you should be astonished at is that you weren't under the tower when it fell. What you should be astonished at is that you weren't in the temple slaughtered with 
those Galileans. And what Brisbane should be astonished at is that they weren't in the burning house. That's what Jesus says. The astonishing thing is not that 9-11s happen and tsunamis happen and burning houses happen and helicopters come down and cancer happens. That's not the astonishing thing in a world full of hell-deserving sinners. The astonishing thing is that this roof has not fallen in yet on us. That's the astonishing thing. And until our hearts are so changed about our own sense of unworthiness before an infinite God and the, and the preciousness of a Savior who comes into the world to die for sinners and to hold back the wrath of, of God until we are amazed that we're alive, that we're breathing, and that this building has not exploded yet, until that's our astonishment, we won't comprehend the gospel. We won't comprehend what life is about. So I conclude that God is setting the stage for us in these things to make sense out of life. Life hangs by a thread of grace. Your life tonight, where you are sitting, is hanging by a thread of grace. I, I don't know if you're, you're like me, but I, I go to bed and I always sleep on my left side. I can't sleep on my right side for some reason. So I sleep like this. And uh, right here is a clock. Um, and I turn the light down so it doesn't shine too bright. And often I just take my pulse like this as I'm going to sleep and count it just to see what it is. And it occurs to me, you know, I don't have any control at all over whether that keeps going. None. Absolutely none. God does. He wants you to feel utterly, totally dependent on him and his grace. He owns every one of you. He owns you. You are not your own. He created you and therefore he owns you. You belong to him by virtue of his having brought you into being. You might say, well, my parents brought me into being. No, they brought your body into being. And even there, God did it. But what about the you? You know you're more than a body. You know you're more than chemicals. Yes, you do. I don't care what evolutionists tell you about simple matter and energy and time producing you. You know better. Way better. You know that love is more than chemicals. You know that hate is more than chemicals. You know that deep sacrifice for people you love is more than chemicals. You know this about yourself. God did that. You are made in the image of God. And this is an awesome thing to be a human being. An absolutely unspeakably great thing to be a human being. And God owns you. And God decides for you what the wasted and unwasted life is. Job had ten children. Remember that story from the Old Testament? It wasn't a fire, but it might as well have been. It wasn't 11, but it was 10, and they were precious. And a wind came, and the house collapsed. 
and they were all dead, all ten children. I went on the line last week, in, I don't know if you've seen this on YouTube, but in, in America last week a, at a rock concert, an inexplicably sudden wind came up. And I watched this on YouTube. My son posted it at his blog. And I tweeted about it afterwards. And I said, save your oh my gods for the brink of eternity. They will sound less empty that way. Because in this video, taken by somebody's iPhone probably from the back, you watch this wind come up and there's this huge Tron. I mean, it's as, it's as huge as this whole stadium with both of those with a big beam of, over the top of, of a metal lights and everything. It just starts to go like this and suddenly just, it just, just totally collapses and six people are crushed to death right in front of these tens of thousands of young people. And this person captures the reaction of these young people. Oh my God, my God. And at that moment, that's not a bad thing to say. Job lost 10 of his children, all of them, in that kind of event. And he went down on the ground, and it says in the Bible, he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped and said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, may God give me the grace to respond like that when the news comes. Later in the book, chapter 12, verse 10, he says, In his hand is life, the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Or the story of Hannah. Do you remember Hannah? She was barren for years, couldn't have any children. And she went up to the temple and she was pleading with God to give her a child. And, and Eli thought she was drunk and criticized her. And, and God assured her she'd have a baby. She had the baby named Samuel. And she, she gave him back to the Lord three years later. And she sang this song. It's a magnificent Song And in it she says, the Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. And God himself says in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 39, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. What I'm saying is that your life is totally God's. You belong to God by right of creation. He made you, and you hang by a thread of grace. And whether you live through this message will depend entirely on God and not on you. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, because it just so sobers me in my daily living, is James chapter 4. It goes like this. Come now, you who say, tomorrow we will go up to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and get gain. 
you do not know about your life. Your life is a vapor. Rather, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you are arrogant. <laughs> I mean, I say, whoa. It, it is arrogant to say, I'm going to Sydney tomorrow morning. Yes, it is. Unless implicit in my soul is, if the Lord keeps the plane in the air, if the Lord doesn't let my heart stop, if the Lord wills, I will live until tomorrow morning and go to Sydney. If I don't implicitly know that, feel that, say that in my mind, I'm arrogant. In other words, it's arrogant not to know our real condition and to presume I control my life. Like, I'm going to get to Sydney tomorrow. No, I'm not. God will get me to Sydney or I won't get there. God owns us totally. We are his. He has the right to take us out or leave us here, and he does nobody any wrong, ever. If this ceiling collapsed right now and all 3,200 of us perished, God would have done nobody any wrong. He has the rights over our life, totally. I am his, you are his. He gave you life, he can take your life anytime he pleases. You can't take my life. I can't take your life. That would be an injustice. Why? Not because I have rights over my life and you dare touch it, or you have rights over your life and I dare not touch it. Rather, it's because God has rights over our lives and we dare not touch his right. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Keep your hands off that baby in the womb and outside. So we're God's. And he defines what life is for, which is where this message is going. I want to know if you, if you own me, if you govern me, if you love me, if you sustain me, if you send your son into the world to die for my sins, to rise again, to give me the hope of eternal life. What's it for? I don't want to waste it. I don't want to throw it away. So Jesus is very jealous that we not waste our one life. It's, it's going by very fast. I'm 65 years old and my life is rushing over the precipice of my present from future to past. It's just the waterfall of time just seems to rush faster and faster. So I join Jesus in not wanting to waste my life. He says, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So the first thing he does is deliver us from any notion, th this life is about getting. This life is about earning and having and amassing and owning and possessing. It's not. It's not what life is for. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, Jesus said. And he thought to himself, 
what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for years to come. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with everyone who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What do you think that last phrase means? That's a puzzling phrase to me. I get the first half of it. Lay up treasures for myself. I know what that is. Get, 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 more, more, more. Now maybe I've got enough. I can feel secure, relax, be happy. This is what life is about. I'm sitting on cash. Therefore, I control my future. Fool, Jesus says. God says, fool. So is everyone who lays up treasure for himself and is, now here's the part that's puzzling, isn't it? is not rich toward God. I'll tell you what I think that means. And we won't linger on it, but I could try to defend it. I think it means you're a fool if you treasure up the world and don't count God as your riches. Don't count God as your treasure. Don't see something supremely valuable there rather than here. That's a fool. A fool looks around the world and says, yes, oh, give me that, give me that. And God's looking down and says, excuse me. I mean, this, this, he, um, Jeremiah 2.13. Be appalled, O heavens. Be struck dumb. For my people have committed two great evils, we could say two great foolish acts. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's Brisbane and Minneapolis. People sniffing at God and saying, I don't think so. And then they dig and they dig and they dig and start sucking on the ground and saying, Mo, that's good. That's good. I'll eat sand the rest of my life in Brisbane and Minneapolis. And God looks down and says, fool. Fool. Laying up for yourselves ephemeral pieces of paper that can buy you at the most 80 years of happiness and then eternal suffering. That's not a deal. It's not a deal. When the creator of the universe and the redeemer of our souls, the most magnificent person that has ever been or will ever be, offers himself for our eternal fellowship and we, we turn away from the living fountain to hew out cisterns. Oh, how jealous Jesus is that you not waste your life. 
If anyone would come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his life, his soul? So you gain the whole world, billions of dollars maybe, Bill Gates, and then it's over. Have you ever known anybody, anybody, I mean, learn from experience if not from the Bible. Have you ever known anybody that on their deathbed was heartened and made hopeful and encouraged by being reminded of how big their bank account was? None. It doesn't work that way. It just seems to work that way when you're healthy and it's a mirage. It's a waste. You're wasting your life when you devote yourself to amassing stuff. It's interesting that Bruce in his introduction quoted what he heard as a young man because there was a plaque hanging over the sink in our kitchen from 1952 when the house was built until I left for college in 1964 in Greenville, South Carolina. And that plaque, Bruce, said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So I grew up as a little boy seeing that every day and and ever since I can remember, which would be about high school, I don't remember much as a kid, but I remember high school and then on from there, I have dreaded wasting my life. There are few things that I fear more than wasting my life. I'm 65 now. I don't know how much I have left, but I still tremble at that thought of taking the next year, five, 10, 15, whatever I have left, wasting it. And I had you raise your hands, you 40 and under. You know why? Because I've got a son pushing 40, which means I'm old enough to be the father of everybody who raised his hand. Which means I have a very, I have a, I don't know, I don't know any of you probably. Maybe one or two out there I wouldn't know. But I, I come in here thinking that way. I'm your father. I have sons. I want my sons saved and I want them not to waste their lives. I want it really bad. I would die for it in a minute. And I feel that way about you. I, I want to talk to that generation. I'm, I'm glad there's a lot of you here like me, you know, because I got a word for you too. Because my guess is that Australia, like America, spends billions of dollars to persuade people my age to waste their lives. Billions of dollars persuade us to waste our lives. Get the right kind of recreation vehicle, buy the right kind of away place, get the right kind of boat if you're a fisherman, and then play for 20 years. 
bingo, bridge, shuffleboard, collect shells, and get ready to meet Jesus with scars in his hands. Give an account. Look at my shell collection. Was that, was that a good use of 20 years from 65 to 85? You know what he's going to say? Fool. So I do care about you older folks, although I do feel a burden, Bruce, for, for the younger people because some of you will die young, but most of you will live a, a full life. And there's always some young person dying at our church, it seems, and so I'm very aware that all of you, all of you that are under 40, that is, some of you who are under 40, will not make it to 50 or even 45 in this room. And you've got five years left, and you're going to waste them. You're going to discover what it means not to waste your life. So... Here we are at the key juncture of this message. Okay, you just keep telling us, don't do that. Don't waste it. God owns it. He defines it. Find it out. What is it? The unwasted life. And I'm just going to go right there now and try to say what it is. What does it mean not to waste your life based on what God says, not what, not what I say? What is it? And the text that I'm going to look at is Philippians 1. I don't assume that most of you have Bibles with you, so I'll make sure to, to read it. The, the unwasted life is a life that is devoted to displaying the worth of Jesus in everything you do and say. The unwasted life has a passion to joyfully display the supreme excellence of Christ by the way we live. In other words, God created this world and he created you in order that you might be so satisfied in him that you display to the world his supreme value. So he's getting all the attention and the glory. You're getting all the satisfaction. And that's a deal because it lasts forever. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. So he created this world. And the way you don't waste it is by displaying his worth. It's about his worth, not my worth. My worth consists in displaying his worth. That's what mirrors are for. That's what images are for. You're created in the image of God. What do images do? They image the one they're an image of. We are designed to live so as to be so completely satisfied in who he is that our lives reflect that value, that 
all-satisfying, supreme worth. That's what the unwasted life does. It falls so in love with God and all that he is for us in Jesus that when it lives, it magnifies his worth. So let me give you a text. This is Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope. This is Paul talking, the Apostle Paul. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ might be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So what I hear there is a charter for life. Paul, tell me what life is about. Why am I here? And he says, life is about magnifying Christ in life and death. And let me just make sure we get the word magnify right here. Because you can magnify something in two ways. With a microscope and a telescope. How does Christ mean to be magnified by you in the world? Microscope or telescope? A, a, a microscope takes a teeny, teeny, teeny thing that you can't see and makes it look bigger than it is. So when Paul says, I want to magnify Christ, is that what he means? That's blasphemy. He's so teeny, he needs a lot of help to be made to look bigger than he is. That's blasphemy. Well, what does magnify mean then, if it's not that? Well, it's what telescopes do. They magnify, but how do they magnify? They take things, they're called stars, or galaxies, supernova, and they look to sin-laden, darkened human beings, tiny. They're not tiny. <laughs> Do you believe in the internet? Just type in astronomy or something related and find out. They're not tiny. Well, what is a telescope supposed to do with them? It's supposed to make them look more like what they are. That's the way Paul wants to magnify Christ. He looks tiny in Brisbane, in Minneapolis. That's my hometown, by the way. He looks tiny. People go through their lives all day long and give him zero attention. The stars get more attention. The pavement under their feet and the rug on their living room floor gets more attention than Jesus gets or God gets. He's tiny. And the point of a living the point of living is to so live that he doesn't look tiny anymore to people. They see you, and by what comes out of your mouth, and what you do with your life, he begins to look more like what he is, namely infinitely valuable, infinitely strong, infinitely wise, infinitely loving, because that's what life is for. We live in a way that makes him look that way. And this text shows how we do it. It says that Christ might be honored or magnified in my body, 
whether by life or by death. How is it that you do it by life? The answer to that is given in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. It goes like this. Whatever gain I had, to put yourself in here now, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So you make Christ look valuable by living in a way that shows you prefer him to everything else. Indeed, everything else is, as it were, rubbish compared to him. That's the way you make him look magnificent, by valuing him over all other things. Which means that you use your money then to show that Christ is more valuable than money. You eat food in a way that shows Christ is more precious than food. You use your house, your land, your car, your computer in a way that shows Christ is more valuable than the house or the computer. Now, we could go into a lot of detail here, but I'm just going at the core principle. The, you waste your life if you use your house in a way that people would say you value your house more than Jesus. You waste your life if you use your computer in a way that would make people reasonably think he values his computer more than Jesus. You eat in a way that makes people feel that person needs food more than they need Jesus. What about death? Paul says, I want to magnify Christ in my body, whether by life or by death. How do you magnify Christ, make him look great in your death? And his, his answer is given in the next verse. For to me to die is gain. Well, how is it gain when a Christian, a follower of Jesus, dies? And he answers that in verse 23 of chapter 1. My desire is to depart, that is die, and be with Christ, for that is far better. So, let's put it all together. Paul says, my life will count. My life will not be wasted if I can so die in order to show that Christ is magnificent in my dying. And then he explains, that means Christ will be seen as magnificent if in my dying I count Dying as gain. And dying will be counted as gain because when I die, I get more of Christ. It is far better to be with Him than to be with your wife. Your friends. Your retirement. Your 
fiance. It's better, infinitely better to be with Christ. So here you're a 27-year-old young woman and you're sick with cancer. And all the dreams are falling through your fingers. How at that moment do you make Christ look magnificent? You count death gain. What death does is take away everything in this world. Right? You lose your wife, you lose your children, you lose your dreamed of retirement, you, you lose everything. And all you get is Jesus. And if at that moment there is a heart expression as you're in the hospital, gain. The nurses will know, to you at least, Christ is magnificent. That's what the unwasted life looks like, magnifying the worth of Jesus in living and dying. Let me sum it up. Life and death are given to you. Life is given to you. Death is given to you. And they are given to you for this purpose, to display the supreme value of Christ in life and to display the supreme value of Christ in death. The supreme value of Christ is displayed when you treasure him above what life can give and death can take. You are treasuring him. He is so real to you, so precious to you, so all satisfying to you, so magnificent to you that when all these things threaten to be taken away, you call it gain. Or if you are left here for a season, then you use them so as to show he is more precious than them. Oh, we should use computers, cars, houses. But the, the challenge of the Christian life is so use them. Remember that passage, that strange passage in 1 Corinthians 7? Let those who are married be married as though they were not married. Let those who do business do business as though they were not doing business with the world. Let those who rejoice rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. It's a very strange passage. Rejoice as though you were not rejoicing. What in the world? But that's, that's the mystery of, of living the Christian life. Of course we should be the happiest people on the planet. We should stay in our marriages. We should work harder than anybody at our jobs. But there'll be something about the way we hold this. It won't, it won't look like the way the world is clutching it. And, if I lose this, I'll lose everything. No, no, you don't. Treasuring him above all things is most clearly seen then when you are gladly willing to risk for him and even die for him. We're drawing to a close here. Let me read you a text that captures that from 2 Corinthians 12. This is Paul again. He said to me, the Lord said to me, remember he had just prayed, God, I, I've got this thorn in my flesh and it really hurts. 
and I've asked you three times to take it away, and you haven't taken it away, taken it away. And, and here's what Jesus said back to Paul. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Now test yourself here. Typical Australian, secular, typical American, secular person would say, I don't give a rip about your power being shown in my weakness. I'd like to have this thorn out of my side, thank you. That's what a typical secular, unbelieving person would say because they're at the center of their universe. Here's the way Paul responds to, to Jesus' words that your power is shown to be great in my weakness. That's what you're saying to me. That's why you're leaving this pain. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul had come to discover that the point of life is not to be rid of thorns. This life is so short. It's just filled with thorns. It's filled with pain. We're back where we started. There's going to be another tsunami, folks. The earthquake that, that stretched from Georgia to New York a few days ago in America, one of those is going to bring everything down. America's going to be a footnote. That's coming. We, we don't live for that. What we live for is making much of Christ, magnifying the surpassing power of Christ and His glory in my weakness. So I close like this. I know that, that uh, what Australia needs, what America needs are about 3,000 people whose worlds have been absolutely turned upside down by Jesus Christ. Really seriously, upside down. So that what you're willing to lose and what you're striving to gain is just the opposite from the world. You know, this is a, a, a very secular land, and it, but it's... it's a reached land by and large. The gospel is available in various ways. There are thousands of people groups still in this world that don't have any access to the gospel. There are no churches there. There are no people who speak their language speaking the gospel there. The only way to reach them is missionaries, crossing a culture, learning a language, planting the church there. And almost all the peoples that are left to be reached don't want you to come. Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, tribal peoples, you're not welcome. And that has zero to do with whether you should go. No, no place that Paul went almost was he welcome. His imprisonments were countless. His beatings, he could not remember the number. He was lacerated 39 times on his back, five times over. He never said, I can't go into that town because I'll get hurt if I go in there. 
what an amazing man. When I read Paul's life, I see quintessential, unwasted life because Christ shines so magnificently off of his suffering life, which means my, my closing plea is that you would so see Christ being sent by your Creator into the world to live a flawless life. Jesus never sinned. When He died, it was not for His sins, it was for my sin and your sin. And then He took His life back sovereignly from the grave. I just love that passage in John 10, 18. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And if I lay it down, I can take it up again. Nobody can say that. That's, that's absurd. Dead people don't take their lives back unless they're God, which He was. To live your life to make much of this Christ, this risen, reigning, coming Christ is a magnificent thing and it will involve significant sacrifice. How much and in what way for you, I don't know. But I can promise you, when it's all said and done and you stand before the judge, he will not say, fool. He will say, well done good and faithful servant. You spent your life making my son look really good, which he is infinitely. So Father, I pray now that as we close, you would do a work here in my life and my family, my sons back in the States and in this room, and there are networks of relationships among these 3,000 people that are probably half a million. They know people. And God, if you would be pleased to touch, to, to save those who haven't yet trusted in Christ by opening the eyes of their heart and causing them to embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord and treasure of the, their life, and to strengthen your people with a fresh, new, deep resolve to know you and to love you and treasure you and follow you and spend their whole lives making you look good. If you would do that, Brisbane would never be the same and, and Australia may never be the same. And perhaps they would bless our land because we are a needy, needy people in America. So God, wherever you want to do it, wherever you want to roll this out in a new, fresh, powerful, globe-altering way, we would humbly receive it. In Jesus' name, I pray.